And um, this is, you know, becoming more and more important as our landfills fill up and as the plastic fibers that are in the disposable clothing start to disintegrate into our, in our landfills and start to reach our waterways and our, you know, our water sources and become part of the agriculture. It's a very difficult conversation and most people don't, it's very complicated and hard to decipher and we're bombarded by all the things that we're supposed to do so people are tired but um, it's a very important conversation because we're it's a legacy that we're leaving our children welcome to mindful businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Iyer in our podcast we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes a mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social economic and environmental practices Today we have with us Natalie Channon, founder of Alabama Channon for a modern sustainable life. Welcome Natalie. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm so glad we connected. Tell us about your hometown Florence, Alabama. Uh-huh. Um Florence is um as I mentioned part of the um what we call the shoals which comes from the Muscle Shoals region. Um, this has to do with the river. The Tennessee River runs right through the middle of the four cities. And um, um, actually, Muscle Shoals is spelled like muscle, not like the animal, the mollusk. But um, because the there were a lot of shoals right in, in the river, right where we're from, the people had to pick up their boats and carry them across the shoals. So, you know, we've had settlement here for a very, very long time. And um, we're known for um, some great music folk from W.C. Handy all the way up to, um, you know, all the music that was recorded in the, in the Muscle Shoals region with Muscle Shoals Sound and Fame Studios. Um, Helen Keller is from this area, which some people don't know about. We have a beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright house. We have a history of very uh, creative people coming from this place. And our little town is still relatively small and quaint, but um, we have some great industries and creative um, endeavors going on right now. So it's a great place to live. How long has your family lived there? How many generations? As far as we can count back, about six generations we've been here, so long time. So your roots are basically Florence, Alabama. <laughs> yes, um, my my families have settled here. Um, you know, kind of migrating from the from the coastal areas over. So, tell us how your journey began. What prompted you to start Alabama Channon? Uh, <laughs> Well, um, I do have to say, you know, I started the business in a way kind of by accident, but I guess it was an accident that was, you know, thoughtfully executed. So um, I, you know, had been traveling for a bit and uh, living out of a backpack pretty much. And I wanted to have something to wear to this party one night. And so I took a t-shirt out of my backpack and I wound up kind of cutting it up and sewing it back together again by hand. And, um, you know, I was very excited that um, guests at the party liked the t-shirt that I had on. But more than that, I it had been a really long time since I had made something um, by hand like that, even though I, you know, I'm a trained designer and I had been working as a costume designer 
stylist and, you know, definitely had made things, but um, that act of just taking a needle and thread in my hand and sewing was was something that, um, you know, had been pretty far removed from. And so the morning after the party, I woke up and I had this idea to make another t-shirt and I started doing that and making one um, every day for this little portrait project that I was doing. And um, somehow in the midst of it, I had this idea that I would like to see these 200 one-of-a-kind t-shirts all put together as a project. And um, with friends and family, um, I was able to put together a project to create, to come to my hometown, back to my hometown, and um, engage uh, women who were quilters to sew those 200 uh, one-of-a-kind t-shirts. And um, uh, if I can interrupt I, you, so basically you designed yeah. these things or you had already made prototypes and you wanted these women to sew these in? Um, well, at that time, I was working with um, only recycled materials. So I was um, buying used T-shirts from thrift stores all over. Um, you know, we would sanitize them. I would cut them up and in a collage kind of method, put um, the T-shirts back together again. So I was designing and putting together each one of the T-shirts. And then uh, women in my community were ha- doing the hand sewing on it, essentially using a quilting stitch, running stitch is what you would call it. Um, so it wasn't like a prototype situation, really. They were all, every single one was different. So When was this? Um, this was in 2000, so exactly 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, I, almost to the day, I landed back in New York, I, I believe, after kind of a long travel, as I mentioned. And um, by March or April, I'd already... Um, sort of started piddling with cutting up t-shirts and I believe that first party was in May so um, we're coming up on our 20-year anniversary of doing this kind of work in this little town. I came home in December of 2000 to do that first run of 200 t-shirts but um, obviously I had been working on it for much longer than that so this is a big, big time for us. You were really ahead of your times, considering there is so much talk about sustainability in the fashion industry right now. Since I started the podcast, I'm not sure whether it's just me, but I just hear the word sustainability. And there are so many new brands which try to do what you have been doing for the past 20 years. So it's pretty commendable that you thought about these sort of concepts so early on. Thank you. Yeah, we we've you know as an organization now we're we've been discussing this now for the last year about what what that means. Twenty years of defining sustainability, and um, you know we're really proud of the work that we've done and that we've been able as um, as a small company to. Um, you know, kind of forge this path. How many people do you employ right now? You know, it fluctuates all the time. We have um, anywhere between 20 and 35 employees at any given time that work at um, our building, which is we call the factory. And then we have the same between 20 and 30 uh, independent contractors who um, do our hand sewing and embroidery that live within about an hour and a half radius of the factory. So they are, as I mentioned, they're their own business owners and they work from their homes or their place of business or 
wherever they choose to work. So, you know, altogether we're anywhere between, you know, 40 and 70 people at any given time. Where did you go to school and what was your career path which led you to the current role that you're playing? So um, I have a degree in, um, it, it sounds very modern, my, my degree is in environmental design from uh, the, the College of Design at North Carolina State University. Um, I did a double major, which today they call the Annie Albers program. The environmental design program was really, it was a Bauhaus um, um, structure. Mm-hmm. had um, this kind of very unusual Bauhaus training in the mid-80s in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, which, I mean, I really have to credit with where I am today and the work I've been able to accomplish as a designer really has to do with both the design school there and the textile school. The double major really was in like design theory and with a minor in textile design. And then the other part of it was in the textile school. So like industrial textile engineering, almost um, from a design perspective. So um, I had a very broad education, which has served me very well. So you talked about NC State. I don't know if you've listened to any of our earlier episodes. They seem to be quite creative and innovative in helping develop new talent. For instance, one of our previous guests, her name is Laurie Garnier, and she um, developed this silver spun socks, and which is really popular now. And she started about four years ago. All those creative people out there probably helped you think about these things ahead of your time. You know, you were way ahead of other people who are now most major brands have a tab on their website, which says sustainability, for what it's worth, you know. Um, um, yes, thankfully, I'm not going to um, downplay that because it's about time that, you know, our industry starts to look at its role in um, the environmental issues that we're looking at today. So, um, you know, as you know, the the textile and fashion industry is one of the dirtiest on the planet. And, um you know, it's like I said, it, it's about time, but it's still not nearly enough. So, are you the sole designer now, or? Um, you know, we are. We are now, and have always been a team. I mean, I would say, yes, I am the designer and the creative director, but we have designers that work with us, and you know, we collaborate with pattern makers. Our our artisans who do the hand sewing, you know, it is a symbiotic relationship. So um, as they develop their skills and go in different directions, we can um, design into that. And so um, I would say design, in, in my mind, is a conversation between a team of people. And, you know, sometimes we design into the capacity that our machines have. Um, we have a machine-made program now. Um, sometimes, you know, it's a conversation between the machine sewers and the hand sewers. And so we, as a group, design into that. Sometimes it's about fabric that's available. You know, there's, as you know, there's some people who are developing really beautiful fabrics that might be on a limited um, scale. And so, 
we're able to play with the fabric. And so that to me is a conversation between, you know, fabric makers and embroiderers. And so I, I have a very broad vision of design, which I'm sure has to do with that Bauhaus influence. Where are your fabrics made? Anytime, you know, you talk about fabric and cotton specifically, you really have to start with the farmers. So um, our, you know, our cotton is farmed in Texas and ginned there and then sent to um, North Carolina and South Carolina for all the processing. So there it's uh, spun into yarn, knit and dyed and then comes to us at, to the factory in North. So we have an unbroken uh, U.S. supply, organic supply chain which I think, you know, is is very unusual. Today may be becoming a little bit easier, but I can tell you that it was a very, very difficult process, you know, 10 years ago. So I first heard about you and your brand in the book Fashionopolis by Dana Thomas, where she talks about your printmaking techniques. You have a unique method of how you make the prints. Could you explain to me how it works? Yes, um, yes, uh, we love Dana's book, and I'm very grateful that she included our work in in that fantastic work. Um, yes, so aside from, you know, we practice sustainability on several different levels, so the organic cotton is just one of them. We also practice lean method manufacturing, so... Um, of course, we make samples for our collection and, you know, some very small amounts of pieces. But as a general rule, we don't make anything until it's ordered. So if you come to our website and order a T-shirt, um, we make it for you. And um, we're very, very proud of that process. Part of that is that, you know, normally a fashion company would have to print hundreds and hundreds of yards of fabric. So there are minimums to get machines started to print fabrics. And um, and so what we do now is we have a very um, simple but elaborate stenciling system. So we have over 700 different patterns, stencils in the organization. So when a guest would order something, the piece would be cut, the pattern would be applied to the cut pieces of the fabric, and then that piece would either be sewn by machine or embroidered by hand and constructed by hand, depending on um, what that you know particular design requires. And so um, it allows us not to produce lots and lots of fabrics um, in advance and produce lots of garments in advance that aren't already pre-sold. You know, one of the problems in our industry is that um, a lot of companies, they make decisions in advance about how many they're going to make of a particular piece. And then when those pieces don't sell, um, you know, they may go on on to a sale price. And if it still doesn't sell, it may go to an outlet. And then after the outlet, um, most of the pieces are destroyed. So um, either by fire or landfill. So it's, uh, you know, it's a very wasteful process. And so lean method, you know, alleviates that. So there's very, very little waste. And um, all of all of the waste that we do create, um, or, you know, 99% of our waste can be composted. So, And this way, each uh, article of clothing can be unique because I can pick the pattern that I want stenciled on my dress, right? Is that 
from Correct. what I understand. Okay. So you are creating a unique piece, almost customizing it. It's it's old school. You would go to your tailor, pick out your fabric, and he, he would sew it for you. And Correct. So even in cases like a standard T-shirt, like if you needed it to be two inches shorter, we could shorten that in the cutting process. It doesn't really make a difference to us if we cut it in, you know, white or red or if we cut it, you know, the length that we've designed or if you need it two inches shorter. So a lot of our guests um, utilize that service. Yes. And, you know, we do a lot of wedding gowns as well. So you know, all of that is custom made and one of a kind. Um, we have people come to the factory from all over the world. Uh, we have now, I would say, I'm just taking a stab in the in the dark right now, but <laughs> we have about uh, 50 books of fabric swatches and, um, you know, potential designs. And those 50 books, each of them have probably 20 to 30 swatches in them. So you can sit with our fabric library and, um, find a piece that you love. And then, um, you know, in most cases, if we have the fabric on hand, the fabric color on hand, um, you know, we could make that for you. You talked about the independent contractors or so for you. Yes. How do you reach out to them? Honestly, it's, um, you know, the most successful method has been word of mouth. Um, the very first, um, you know, when I first started, I ran a tiny little ad and the local newspaper that said part-time hand sewing and quilting with a phone number. Um, we got a, about 60 calls from that little ad and about 20 people stuck. And, um, you know, some of those, the, one of the very first sewers that um, ever, you know, responded to the, to the little ad is still sewing for us today. So that's been our primary form. Someone will see them sewing somewhere and say, oh, I'd like to do that. Or today, more people in our community know that we're here. And so they'll reach out, just call the factory and we'll direct them. We have an artisan liaison that um, works um, with all of our artisans and independent contractors. And so they get in touch with her and um, we have a little um, test project that people can take on to try to see if they like it. You're being extremely modest because you know, it's so hard to find <laughs> any talent, any skilled craftsman or artisanal craftsman in our country right now. You're making it sound really easy. I'm sure it's it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running a business. I mean, a business is never without its challenges or anytime you want to do anything that's meaningful, you know, it's, it, it doesn't just come from nowhere. And there is no special sauce or you know, <laughs> there is no secret ingredient. It's, um, you know, just showing up every day. And there are very, very talented people in our community, very creative and um, very talented. And, you know, I am, I am an eternal optimist. I, I do think that, um, you know, when you believe in people that um, they do the very best they can, and oftentimes that is phenomenal, right? We're just lucky enough that they find us. <laughs> and, and I think you hit the nail on the head in saying that almost all founders have to be eternal optimists. Oh, yes, because you would quit every day of the week. <laughs> I mean, someone asked me, you know, sometimes I I used to have, there was a production manager that we worked together for a very long time, for 13 years, and um, 
he's since taken another job, but, um, you know, sometimes I would say, why does it have to be so hard? And he would say, you know, Natalie, if it was easy, everybody on this street would have a business. And so sometimes I just remind myself of that, you know, it's, it's not always easy. But the thing as I've gotten older, I realize that, you know, let's play at fixing it. Like, can't we have fun while we're trying to do this thing? And you know, I think that is what it is. Every day there's another challenge and um, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. Do it with a smile. Yeah, you have pieces that fit together and you have some pieces that don't fit together and it's trial and error to make it work. And, you know, this idea of Kaizen, you know, idea of continuous improvement, I mean, that is been who we are for the last 20 years. Um, you know, the UPS lady who used to come in in our in our old place, she would say, every time I come in, you've moved something. <laughs> it's right. like, yeah, because, you know, you find out like this table is better over there because I have to take 15 less steps to do this process. And, um, you know, we are in our company is in constant Kaizen, constantly trying to, you know, find better ways. And I'm going to be honest with you, like, it's not for everybody. Not all humans thrive on change. You know, we're working on our archives right now. Um, We've got 20 years of, you know, documentation and garments. And um, we're working with an organization in Alabama called the Alabama Archives. It's in Montgomery to find a permanent home for some of these things. And, you know, I, uh, as we were talking about it, you know, people like to say, oh, your your organization is amazing and you, you know, it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish. And yes, it is. But let's, you know, let's all cards on the table. You know, we've had employees quit who weren't happy. We've had, you know, challenges that go beyond anything you can imagine or think of. All the things that you can imagine that have happened have happened to us. I mean, we're really lucky right now. We have a team of 30 people who love what they do, who are incredibly talented, who have zero drama bones in their body. I mean, it's it's amazing. I love the word drama bones. I'm going to use that. <laughs> you know, there are, you know, it hasn't, it, it hasn't always been that way. Um, yes, we've done great work. But again, it's this process of, you know, just showing up every day. Like this didn't happen overnight. You know? Talk about the school of making that you have. Yeah, I'd love to. But before that, I'm trying to visualize your the place, the factory. Can you give me a visual description of the building? It just seems so cool. Just um, from reading Dana's book, I got a visual uh, <laughs> of loft with you know sewing machines and tables with patterns and, and bolts of fabric leaning against the wall and then a cafe. Talk about the whole competence of your physical structure that you have there. Yeah. Um, so the factory, we have um, the building itself has about, um, I think, 100,000 square foot in it. Um, and we occupy about 40,000 square foot. Um, so it was originally built as a 
Tennessee River Mills. It was a sewing plant. And then later the TJ's organization purchased it from Tennessee River. So um, when we talk about our region being, you know, the t-shirt capital of the world, this building was in the center of that that massive production. They ran three shifts in the building and hundreds of thousands and thousands of dozens of t-shirts were sewn there over the years. And so, you know, it's not a fancy place. It's a metal construction building in the middle of the industrial park. It has concrete floors and very high ceilings. Um, yes, Dana's description is spot on. We have we have an area with sewing machines that are constantly running. We have a beautiful area where we do the stenciling. Um, there's cutting areas. There's a washroom. There's our flagship store, which I think is very lovely. We do all of our shipping and our web design and management. All of that is done in-house as well. So, you know, we have just great people and a great space to be able to do it all in. Talk about the School of Making then. Yes, the School of Making is um, has its own section in the building. Um, it developed um, really in 2008, Um I published a book called Alabama Stitch Book that really was about those first techniques that we started using when I uh, came home to start this work. So when Alabama Stitch Book was published, it was so funny. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how it came about. I, um, if we have a little bit of time, I can sort of give you the background on it. This, are you, do you want the five-minute version or the one-minute version? Five-minute. The five-minute version. Okay. Okay, so you have to think back about when I started the company. So in the year 2000, you have to remember that the Internet was really – it really had not found a lot of traction. I mean, I tell some of our staff today that, you know, the first stores that we sold to, after about a year, we were selling to about 20 stores around the world, and only one person had an email address. So that gives you kind of an idea of the, you know, it's hard to remember that that was only 20 years ago. We had been making the t-shirts. I was running the production um, in Alabama. I had two business partners that were in New York. And I was doing, (laughs) we were doing everything from answering the phone to cutting production to, you know, doing the stenciling and all these things. And at night I would sit and, you know, do the accounting at the end of the day. And um, I started going on these kind of, you know, message boards, which very early internet. And I found some comments about the work we were doing that called the company very elitist. (laughs) And I, it kind of, it made me mad in a way that, um, you know, I, I was, we were working from this little three bedroom brick ranch style house on, on County Road 200. You know, I was getting these recycled t-shirts from all these thrift stores. They were, you know, I was having to sanitize them and cut them apart. And it was just the antithesis of elitism. You know, if, if you think of fashion elitism, I mean, this was the counter opposite. And you were not working with silks and tools. No, no, this was, you know, I was in the middle of the country. (laughs) I mean, one time we found a a snake in the washing machine. It was like, it was not, it was not elitist. Let me just say that. And at the same time, I remember um, I had a subscription to Wired Magazine because I was quite interested in technology. And it was an issue that talked about open source music. This was the time of Napster and all these things that were happening. Mm -hmm. 
And then at the same time, I was working with these artisans who were living uh, and working, as I mentioned, in about an hour and a half radius. And so I learned that the further someone, it's like the art of war, the further someone gets away from the home base, the harder it is to kind of manage. And so I had written this little hand-done book about, um, you know, the techniques that we were using because... I mean, even though I did not invent these techniques, you know, these are age-old techniques that we're using, we were perhaps using them in a new way and, you know, bringing them back with a new life. And so um, we needed to have just some guidelines around how things had to look because we were selling them to stores and they needed, of course, to be sort of the same, even though they were being sold as one-of-a-kind pieces. So I had written this little hand-done book with hand-drawn illustrations. You know, I was living in the country in this house and being called elitist. And, you know, at the same time, all this you know, technology was starting to to explode. And I got a call about um, from an agent if I would be interested in writing a book about the sewing techniques that we were um, that we were using. And I guess it just it hit me on one of those days where I was just kind of tired and felt like I was beating my head against a wall. And I, I said to her, you know what, I've already written the book. I mean, little did I know that I'd not come even close to writing the book. But um, I said yes. And, you know, it's so funny, like once we signed the contract for the book with uh, Abrams, you know, a lot of people in my industry said to me, Natalie, you know, you're giving away your trade secrets. People are go- not going to buy your collection anymore. And you know, I have to admit, it was a little terrifying, the thought like, okay, I've put my own nail in my own coffin, and this is going to be the end. So at the same time, we were shipping these garments all over the world, and they were being knocked off by, you know, legitimately large designers. And so I said to the the editor of the book, I was like, let's just there were two patterns that everybody was knocking off. So I said, let's just go and put the patterns in the book because they're knocking them off anyway. So they can just have the patterns. So we took our two best-selling patterns and put it in the book. So I was certain that, you know, my career as a designer was over. And um, the book came out and, you know, we started getting calls from people who, who had the book and they would say things like, oh, you know, this is kind of hard. And um, or things like, oh, you know, now we understand why your garments are worth so much, not why they cost so much, but why they're worth so much. And um, it was wonderful and surprising. And so the book is about Alabama Stitch Book was working with recycled materials. And by that time, um, you know, we had started using a combination of recycled materials and the organic cotton from Texas. You know, readers started reaching out to us, well, couldn't you just sell your organic cotton because there wasn't any available on the market? So on this little handmade web page, we just started selling yardage of natural colored um, organic cotton from Texas. And... Um, you know, <laughs> we started getting emails. Well, it's kind of hard to dye it into colors. Could you start selling some colors? And then we started getting emails. Well, it's kind of hard to cut it into the garments. Could you just, you know, cut it and stencil it for us and maybe sell kits? And then folks started reaching out. Well, maybe you could 
teach a workshop where I could come to learn to do these things. And so, you know, very slowly we started adding little pieces like that. And, you know, fast forward 10 years later, we have a whole division of the company that's called the School of Making that really has to do with really what I would call cultural sustainability. So um, trying to sustain some of these um, techniques that we found in our region were like dying arts. And, um, you know, that's become a very important part of the business. We have people come from all over the world now to take classes at the factory. We have a area for that. We do, um, you know, we have a section of our website that still sells cotton jersey fabric because even though it is a little easier to find today, we feel like we have one of the best cotton, organic cotton jerseys on the market. So, we sell fabric, we sell sewing supplies, we sell those kits <laughs> where you can buy kit pre-stenciled and ready to sew. So. so talk about the kits exactly. That's kind of is fascinating for me. I yeah. learned some basic sewing. So, you know, the kits come cut to size. So you order a kit. We use the same lean method manufacturing with our kits that we use with our collection. It's, um, you know, it's a separate part. Our collection remains our collection. And then we have special stencils and colors and patterns that we use for the school of making. So you would um, order, let's say, a skirt, and the skirt would be cut to your size and specifications and the color that you want, and then stenciled with the pattern that you want on it. And then that kit would come shipped to you with thread, elastic, any of the notions that you would need to complete that project. Mm -hmm. um, most of the kits that we sell are um, patterns that have been launched in one of our books. So all of the all of the instructions for sewing those kits are in one of our books. And so you use, they're, they're meant to be, you know, a companion to the books where um, to simplify the process for um, makers at home. What if I don't want to sew? Um, do you have people <laughs> who can sew it for me? Uh, well, not the not the kits from the School of Making, but obviously our collection, um, we have artisans who do that hand sewing. So, yes, every option is available. I read somewhere about the bidding model, how the subcontractors bid to sew the kits. Is that true? That is correct. So our collection pieces and garments that are sewn by hand our independent contractors uh, bid on the work. So any given day or week, we have, um, you know, a number of projects, which is always fluctuating. Um, the independent contractors can access that bid sheet at any time and can place a bid on a project or not, whatever they feel like they like to sew and whatnot. And, and then the bids are awarded based on any number of um, factors, you know, quality, time, price, depending on we might need something really quickly for a wedding or we might, you know, have a very long time. And some, you know, each of the independent contractors has their own likes and dislikes. Some don't like to bead, so won't ever bid on a project that has beads on it. Some love to bead and really only want to do that. So it's it's very mixed how they um, so they set the prices on all of the work. Um, we have a very um, again a simple but mildly complex system that is based kind of on the number of square inches in a panel, and so they can determine how much they would charge to do a square inch of a particular embroidery. And then each 
each garment, you know, has a certain number of square inches in it, and they can calculate um, pretty easily. And when was this sort of uh, bidding model set up? Um, you know, I have to think back now, 20 years in. I mean, it was definitely close to the beginning. Uh, we had a, um, you know, we worked with the Department of Labor to um, figure this system out. I think it was in 2003. So you were before freelancers.com, you were before Upwork. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> while you were talking, I'm like, this is freelancers.com before the .com. I never thought about that. But yes, um, you know, there's a lot of labor law around women's clothing. And so, um, you know, there's quite a lot of compliance issues. And so this is a very big conversation, which we're just very, really scratching the surface on. But, you know, I probably know more about labor law than most designers. With our conversation now, I've gathered that you have the sewing company, the design and the sewing company, the, the clothing company, and you have the school of making and you have a cafe? Yeah, um, we have a small cafe in the at the factory. Um, we no longer serve lunch, but um, we have special events there, and we do quite a few events at the factory. And so the the cafe works as the the really the heart of the company because who doesn't love good food and drink? So <laughs> um, yes, so we have a cafe. Recently, we founded a not-for-profit organization called Project Threadways that um, the mission is to study the role of textiles in our region with, um, you know, with an uncensored mind and looking, you know, only to tell the truth. So, um, you know, you can't work with cotton in the state of Alabama without, you, you don't go back too far before you find a very um, ugly and appalling history. And so, um, I don't believe I I can't work in cotton in this state and not try to have that conversation. So um, the organization is to, um, you know, document, preserve and discover our past, present and future of textiles in the region. And um, we have a symposium every year in April. Um, starting last year was our first symposium. We have another one this year and um, which the the theme for this year is um, textiles through time. So really understanding textiles in our region from the time of the Native American Indians um, all the way up to today and with Dana Thomas's help into the future. Um, next year, the theme for 2021 is textiles and activism. And um, um, I came across um, a very interesting story recently, which I, I honestly did not know that there was a very famous quilter named uh, Ruth Clement Bonds who created um, what is believed to be the first image of black power um, was depicted on a quilt that was made during the TVA era, and it was um, actually sewn here in the Muscle Shoals region. Um, and the quilt itself is owned by the Museum of uh, Art and Design in New York City now. And it's the image of a black fist with a bolt of electricity going through it because her husband um, was the supervisor for the African-American workers as um, on the dam that was being built on the Tennessee River at that time. And so um, we're hoping that this quilt is going to be the centerpiece of our um, symposium for 2021, which we entitled Textiles and Activism. 
um, you know, there's just, we have a lot going on, a lot of wonderful things. So. I'm going to kind of put you in a spot. Your prices and and price of other sustainable brands, they are definitely higher with a good reason you know, f- for all that you do. So the question I have, if a person needs to be sustainable, does he or she need to have sufficient disposable income? I don't think disposable income is is necessary. I think it's more a question of price per wear, right? So you can buy something that's less expensive mm-hmm. that maybe only lasts a couple of times and you buy that a lot. Or you can buy one piece that you choose to have in your wardrobe for a very long time. So the price per wear is actually much less expensive than the disposable garment. You know, the problem is, is that you kind of have to save in order to be able to purchase that one item. And, you know, they're completely hand embroidered, you know, floor length gowns. They are very expensive, but it it takes so much time to put the fabrics together, to do the hand painting, to, you know, an artisan could work one or two months on a piece. So, you know, when you get to that level, it's a different, it's not for an everyday, you know, this is not something that you... I think it's really important for people to think about sustainability as cost per use than just the price tag. Yes. And um, this is, you know, becoming more and more important as our landfills fill up and as the plastic fibers that are in the disposable clothing start to disintegrate into our, in our landfills and start to reach our waterways and our, you know, our water sources and become part of the agriculture. It's a very difficult conversation and most people don't, it's very complicated and hard to decipher and we're bombarded by all the things that we're supposed to do. So people are tired. But um, it's a very important conversation because we're, it's a legacy that we're leaving our children. One last thing, you know, and something I think is very, very important and we don't talk enough about, your skin is the largest organ on your body. So everything that you put on your skin is, is entering your body. So when you put fibers that have chemicals on them. And these are all things that are leaching into your body through your skin. It's as if you are, it's the same as if you are eating it. And so, you know, not only for the health of our environment, but for our own health, it's really important to, you know, be selective about what we're wearing. So looking future at the fashion industry and sustainability how do you think the rent-to-wear models like Rent the Runway, other startups, how do you think the sharing economy, what role will that play in the sustainable fashion industry? I, personally, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'm up for every kind of model. You know, I, I think about this like a pendulum swings. You know, it takes time. Like a pendulum starts to swing and it swings very wide. And so we have to try a lot of different things until we get to that balanced middle point where we're, you know, where our industry is on a good path. So, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that people are trying different models, you know. I mean, I always joke with our staff, you know, one day we may be designing holograms, like you push a hologram on your watch and your, you know, your, your outfit is cast onto your body. So you actually don't have any clothing on at all. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's just a 
you know, an image of a piece of clothing. So, I mean, who knows what the future will bring? 20 years ago, like I said, you know, one one of our clients had an email address. So. And 20 years from now, when we hear this tape, we'll see the hologram dress. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Natalie said it 20 years ago. Yeah, or maybe you just have one white dress that you wear, <laughs> or, you know, one white pair of pants. It's just a white thing. And then the pattern or, you know, the shape of it is, is cast onto you. I, I don't know, but... You know, who knows what the future will bring. But um, for now, I, I, I love a great uh, cotton piece. It's We have a joke that every day at Alabama Channon is pajama day because everything is so comfortable. On that note, Natalie, thank you so much for talking to us. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you from all of us at Alabama Channon and the School of Making. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. We recorded the podcast at Q1067 in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer from Mindful Businesses.